This is a fresh agenda, bringing your productivity and creativity together to generate your deepest work. Here is Christina Mendonca. Welcome to A Fresh Agenda, where we talk to innovators and entrepreneurs and find out how, through the distractions of life, they get at their deepest work. If you're a Disney fan, you're going to love today's guest. Doug Lipp is an author, entrepreneur, and international corporate speaker on issues of culture, leadership, and change. He started working for Disney in 1978, and by the age of 29, he was heading up an international think tank for Disney and creating the Training Academy for Disney employees in Tokyo. He worked in Disney corporate during a very tumultuous time for the company, when a change in leadership away from a family-led business had Disney threatened by hostile corporate raiders, and the leadership team was under constant attack. After Disney, he established the International Relations Institute and wrote Disney U. These days, his passion is researching and analyzing successful global corporations and helping those companies align their culture to their values. He has a fabulous training program, travels all over the world, and is still very much a part of the Disney family. In fact, he's usually with the actual Disney family several times a year for events. Doug Lip joins me now. So, Doug, uh, I know you travel internationally uh, for your speaking engagements and, and other business opportunities. Where in the world are you now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in San Francisco, Christina, about ready to launch off to Shanghai. My wife and I are going to be visiting Shanghai Disneyland tomorrow. Then we go to Taipei for some work with a client and then to Beijing. So other than that, we're doing nothing. Oh, fan yeah, right. Fantastic. <laughs> so talk to me about you. I mean, I've given a little bit about your background and how long you were with Disney and, and your, your focus on creating positive cultures and businesses. Why do so many companies struggle with creating a positive culture? Boy, that is, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And when you, at least when I narrow it down, I try to keep things as simple as possible despite the inherent complexity. And I think the culture is a combination of why we exist and how we create what we're going to be doing. So oftentimes organizations focus on one or the other and not both. They, they talk about the why, and there's books written about getting the why, and that's the big picture of, what are we doing with our business and why do we exist? But they might fall down on the operational side of, gosh, how do we bring this to life? And then on the flip side, some organizations focus on strategies and tactics to the extent that they don't have the big picture. They don't have the why in place. So I think that if an organization is able to combine the why and the how, they're off to a really good start. We see so many smaller businesses that seem to have a really good corporate culture, and then as they expand and they grow, that kind of gets lost in the mix. How has Disney been able to maintain its culture through just exponential growth and global initiatives? Right, from one little theme park in 1955 in Anaheim to 12 around the world now, yeah, the organization has transcended cultural differences and geographic differences and all, all kinds of differences, and it's really staying true to the, the core values, at least on the operations side. Now, certainly, you've got film. You've, I mean, you were a, a, a part of the affiliate. You were ABC at one time. So, I mean, as you expand, I don't think you can keep in every operating division every single value that maybe the home division started with. For example, Disneyland values are not found at ESPN or ABC. And I think you have to be 
open to the idea that we might have different operating divisions that have slightly different approaches. But as far as the theme park environment and what most of the public relates to as a Disney product, it's remaining true to the values that Walt and some of his core team created back in 1955 and being willing to make some adjustments to those core values. But the the core values that I talk about still to this day with former executives that Pam and I regularly meet with that I wrote about in my Disney U book, the four keys to success of safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. Those four keys, Christina, have been in place for close to six decades now, and they're still alive and well. Yes, they are. And when you are called in to help businesses either change their culture or improve their culture, do you look at those four areas first, or do you do kind of an assessment of that particular company and look for what perhaps their four uh, criteria are? Exactly. The latter, what you talked about, is I look at what they consider to be their essence. And it doesn't have to be the four words that I just mentioned, but it has to get beyond the fuzzy words that you find in vision and mission statements. Because everybody says we have to be, we have to have integrity, we have to be honest, we have to have good service, value, blah, blah, blah. And everybody nods in unison that that's good. But then you get to the concept of, all right, how do we bring those to life? And so the essence, it, the way that, that Van France, the founder of the Disney University, put it is, instead of giving our employees this giant vat of soup, let's give them the bouillon cube, which is the essence of what we do. And so that's exactly what I do with organizations is I'll say, what's the equivalent of safety, courtesy, show efficiency in your organization? And frankly, a lot of them struggle mightily with that. Right, right. As you were rising in the corporation at Disney, what excited you most about the Disney way, about the way they built their culture and what you were able to learn from it? Boy, it was it was the attention to detail and not wavering from the, the message. And I've I guess as a as a new hire from college and then moving along in the organization, that gave me the the focus to know I'm on target here. It didn't waver. You know, when you're a new a newer or younger employee and you join an organization, it's nice to have some pretty strict uh, guidelines within which to work. And the Disney culture provided that to me, which paradoxically is what also caused me frustration as I moved along in my career. Right, right. As you were working there through your 20s and 30s and 40s, I, I know you were absorbing that culture, but were you also looking for ways to improve it? And how did you do that? Yes, yes. well, one of the, I kind of get to the end, of, uh, end game here is when we were getting ready to go to Disneyland Paris, I was looking at how do we become more culturally sensitive in a foreign environment because when we were in Japan with my Japanese language ability I was oftentimes thrown into the middle of some pretty intense negotiations and fixing things that had not gone well and it was not because people had ill spirit in mind they they just were uninformed about working across cultures and so to make a long story short I had proposed to the Disney Corporation to in, embark on some cross-cultural training before we went to France, and I enlisted the help of a professor at Stanford University who was an expert in this, and ultimately the company said, nah, we don't need to do that. We're, we're Disney, and everybody loves us. And that's when I kind of <laughs> saw the writing on the wall. <laughs> do you find that, you know, with our global culture now and, and so much 
much business being done on the internet. Are American companies better at cross-culturally training their employees, or do we still have a long way to go? It's better than it was before, but there's still a lot to be done. I think that as, like you said, with, with the advent of the internet and with young professionals and students traveling more now than when you and I were younger and when, when our parents were younger, just by exposure to new cultures as a younger individual, I think that helps get people's um, mindset squared away that the way we did it at home isn't always the right way. But that said, I still see a lot of organizations failing miserably at the concept of we're going to bring together a team of four, five, six different cultures. And the misguided idea is that, well, since we're all PhDs or we're all engineers or we're all whatever we are, we'll get along just fine. And oftentimes I see those teams devolve into bickering and fighting over things as simple as what time should a meeting start, what time does the day start, what time does the day end, and what constitutes success. Wow. Man. You know, when you look at Disney and you think of all of, you know, starting with Walt and on down, there have been so many just such strong leaders that have taken the company different places and 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 is still keeping within those cultural norms and, and keeping the, the culture of the company strong. What do you look for when you go to help corporations in a strong leader? What, what two or three traits does every leader need? Transparency is first. Yeah, no, no hidden agendas. And it doesn't matter if a leader is extroverted or introverted or has great stage presence or doesn't have great stage presence. Those, that's kind of icing on the cake. But the whole idea of having that rock-solid set of values that don't waver with the changing in the economy or that don't waver with the mood of the team or whatever the case might be is that that rock-solid set of values and the transparency of if you do this, this will happen. If you do that, that will happen. And the consequences are clear and consistent. Can you train someone who's not particularly charismatic to be that kind of leader? Or does it, do you have to be charismatic? Is it enough if you're transparent and, and your employees see you as a smart leader? I think it might depend on the organization because I, I've seen a lot of, of leaders that are not charismatic by, in the way they present ideas, but they are steadfast and they are rock solid and they might actually have spokespeople or people on their team that are actually the better cheerleaders than they are, but the cheerleaders represent the values and the steadfastness and transparency maybe of the founder or of the leader. As an example, Walt Disney hired my mentor, Van France, to kind of be the cheerleader to help create the Disney University and create that culture. And certainly Walt himself was charismatic beyond belief, but so was Van France and many other of these men and women that I worked with. But the point is, is what they were saying was exactly what Walt was saying every day. And all too often I see charismatic leaders that sound great today, but then tomorrow they say something completely different. And so then you whipsaw your employees who don't know what direction they really should take. I think that, I mean, I've worked in organizations where uh, there have been strong leaders that that showed us the way and other times where, yeah, you didn't know what you were going to get. And it creates a level of uncertainty among employees that makes for, it makes for you know, not good productive, productivity, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think getting back to the original part of your question, you can teach anyone to be a better presenter. Having a charisma, I don't, I'd have to get a better definition of that term. But again, I would take 
honesty and transparency over charisma any day. And I think over time, employees will see through false charisma or charisma that isn't backed up with, with values and transparency, and they will start to abandon the ship. Mm-hmm. You were describing earlier um, during some cross-cultural training that you suggested Disney saying, or someone saying in the corporation, oh, we're Disney, everyone loves us. You know, when you right, reach right. this level uh, of dominance that Disney has and other companies have in their industries, uh, how do you how do you convince them that it's important to continue innovating, whether it comes to building company culture or innovating in well, everyone knows that you should innovate in product lines, but to innovate in company culture as well? That's where a leader, and again, getting back to the the transparency and steadfastness, I'll go back to a story from when Disneyland was just ten years old, but it's a it's a story that still is alive and well in the Disney lore and and history today. And it's a lot of the men and women that I worked with said gave me the same idea, the same story. They said at the 10th anniversary of Disneyland, Walt got the team together and said, kudos to you, this is 1965, by the way. We've knocked the ball out of the park. We've gotten accolades from around the world. And then he said, congratulations, but I want you all to know that the first 10 years, in my opinion, are nothing more than a dress rehearsal. And if any of you want to rest on your laurels, there's the door get out. (laughs) It has to come from leadership to say we are not going to be uh, sitting back and relaxing. In Japanese, it's called Kaizen, is the continuous pursuit of perfection. So if your leadership is constantly driving, we must be looking for new ways to move the needle even slightly, then by default, everybody down the pecking order is going to be saying the same thing to their direct reports. But as soon as leadership takes their foot off the gas, everybody falls apart. But that there's something so energizing in saying that, in saying that we're going to continue to move the needle, even though we have knocked it out of the park. That's fantastic. So you've worked with so many different companies. Are the challenges similar or you find that today's companies have very different challenges? No, it's all the same. It's all the same. It's the, 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 the vehicle by which messages are conveyed has changed, certainly with, with electronic communication and social media and the speed with which communication is conveyed. You know this far better than I. But at the, at the essence of the message and the essence of success and failure, I don't see any differences at all. And I have discussions with millennials all the way through people that are close to 100 years of age, and it's truly amazing the similarities regarding the challenges as well as those that are massively successful. Do you find generational differences? I mean, there's been a lot said about uh, millennial workers and and some of the the values that might be different than Gen Xers. I mean, do you go into that in some of your workshops? Yeah, in fact, well, the, when I talked about the, the guy I brought in from Stanford to help us at Disney, I eventually started a think tank with him in Palo Alto because of my frustration with the slow-moving uh, culture that I was finding at Disney at the time. And we were working with mergers and acquisitions and teams from around the world. And when I run into a, a manager, a supervisor, an executive, a board member who says, ah, these millennials, I can't relate to them, 
I'll just call them on the spot and I'll say, you're just being lazy. What if you said instead of these millennials, said, oh, these Chinese or, oh, these East Coasters or West Coasters, you're basically telling me you're not willing and able to take the time to step into their universe, figure out what makes them tick, and then decide if and when and how much you should alter your approach to bring them on board or for them to listen to you. So, yes, absolutely, generational differences are no different than cultural differences, and those who endeavor to find out what that other party or that other group is thinking are going to be miles ahead of those that say, no, you come to my side of the dance floor and then we'll get along. What are you working on now that's just exciting and new for you? You've not only worked for Disney, you've had your own businesses and now you have Disney U and you're traveling all over doing these workshops. What is new and exciting for you? What's new and exciting for me is is an online training program that Pam and I have been working on for a number of years to help spread the word without me getting on an airplane <laughs> and suffering from jet lag. So it's it's really exciting because I can continue to produce content and get it out into the business world or the academic world without necessarily having to jump on a plane and go there. And we have a number of facilitators that we're working with, some who used to work at Disney, others who've been proficient and successful in their own careers that are on board to help us as facilitators with this program. But it's it's not standing still. And I, I kind of think that even as a 62-year-old, I'm still driven by Walt's challenge of never resting on your laurels. And you still are so much. I mean, you're the, you're the Disney family. You've invited me and my husband to events having to do with Disney. And you're, <laughs> you're heading off now on an international trip in which you'll be uh, doing other things with the Disney family, right? Yes, indeed. And we also work with literally the Disney family in San Francisco at the Walt Disney Family Museum to help that museum become even more of a of a learning and training vehicle by which to share the success and some of the challenges that Walt himself faced. Fantastic. All right. Let's tell people how they can reach you, find you, get a hold of you. Of course, we can always get your book, Disney U, on Amazon. But where else can we find you? Well, my website is uh, douglip.com, D-O-U-G-L-I-P-P.com. And there's one final thing that I just want to leave. Since I'm a trainer at heart, and I just want to share a concept that I, I share with a lot of executives around the world who will say, well, you know, I don't have the time, energy, or money to train people. And I'll say, well, let's discuss what training is first, because if you don't train people, you're going to be in trouble. And so I challenge their creativity. I challenge their ability to think outside of the box, because my mentor, Van France, always challenged me. He said, budgets are always going to be tight. Headcount's always going to be tight, but by golly, creativity is free. So, Christina, when I have an executive or a senior person who says to me, what if I train my people and they leave? And I'll say, yeah, that's, that's a point. But what if you don't train your people and they stay? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's kind of fun to, to help, help people think in different ways. <laughs> Absolutely. And it is, it is crucial. The, move, the world is moving too fast for all of us not yeah. to continue our education for our entire lives. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure to chat with you, and you have such great insights. I look forward to the book that you've yet to write. (laughs) Thank you so much, Doug, and I appreciate your time. Have a wonderful trip. So much fun to spend some time with Doug Lip and get some of his wisdom. You can check out his book, Disney U. You can get that on Amazon or on his website, which is Doug Lip. That's Lip with two Ps.com. He has a great blog post on there right now as well called The Three 
pillars of organizational success. So check that out as well. So we thank him for his time. And I thank you for your time. Thank you for being here for a fresh agenda. If you want to reach me at any time, go to my website, christinamendonza.com. Check that out. Drop me a note. Let me know if you like what you hear or if you have a guest you'd like me to interview. And again, have a wonderful day and let's stay connected. This is a fresh agenda, bringing your productivity and creativity together to generate your deepest work.